0: Hey everybody! Welcome to Happy Dog Takes on the World. My name is Sean Watterson. I am one of the owners at the Happy Dog, and we have tried to create uh, uh, continuity with our Happy Dog Takes on the World series. And we are glad that we are able to come to you live virtually online, and look forward to being back in person hopefully soon. Um, before I turn it over to our moderator, I just want to thank our partners. Uh, in putting this program together, um, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle East Studies, international partners in mission, and of course the City Club. And uh, big thanks to Stephanie Jansky of the City Club for everything she does to make this possible. And uh, our media partner, IdeaStream, and our our incomparable moderator, Tony Ganser, um thank you to tony and to IdeaStream for for participating in this program so with that uh cheers and i'll turn it over to tony
1: thanks so much sean uh hello and welcome to our virtual happy dog takes on the world series i am tony ganser afternoon host for northeast ohio npr station wcpn idea stream I'm also having internet problems, so if I start to get a little glitchy, it's not on purpose. It's just part of our world now. Um, Our region is very aware of the myths and realities around so-called rust belts, places here and abroad that at one time housed global manufacturing giants and promised a decent middle-class life for workers. These industrial centers of the past seem to have seen their prominence and prosperity diminished by many factors, including companies seeking warmer climates and cheaper labor and tax liabilities in an ever more globalized world. Rust Belt communities face depopulation, vacancy, poverty, and the loss of community assets as the tax base erodes. In addition to a hollowing out of these communities' assets, many argue it's allowed a boon in political populism a nationalism based on resentment, blame, and the yearning for the good old days. This phenomenon is not unique to the United States. The United Kingdom, France, Germany, and others have dealt with the decline of Rust Belt and a subsequent increase in populism with varying results. Tonight, we'll talk with national experts about the transatlantic effort to diminish the appeal of populism, revitalize Rust Belt economies, and— Restore Democracy. We're joined by Dr. Jeffrey Anderson. He holds joint appointments in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service and Department of Government at Georgetown University. He's also the former director of the BMW Center for German and European Studies. Thanks so much for being here.
2: Pleasure to be here. Thank you.
1: Also joining us is John Austin, director of the Michigan Economic Center, a center for ideas and network building to advance Michigan's economic transformation. He's also non-resident senior fellow for both the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the Brookings Institution. Together, they authored the piece, How to Finally Defeat Populism, which appeared in the December 2020 issue of Foreign Policy. John, thanks also for being here.
3: Good to be Back in Cleveland,
1: sort of. <laughs> uh, as in every City Club forum, you can participate with your questions. Even if I'm delayed a little bit by my internet issues, you can text your questions to three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794. That's three three zero five four one five seven nine four. 541 5794. You can also tweet them at the City Club. Somehow they will make it to me, and I will fit them in. Um, so with that, let's begin. Let's start with that uh, article that you guys penned uh, for foreign policy. In it, you talk about uh, Rust Belt regions becoming crucibles for neo-populism. First of all, can you explain maybe what neopopulism is, as opposed to just good old populism uh i don't know if john you want to go first and then jeff
3: and and let me first say it is really a special treat to um with clevelanders um my father who may be tuning in to heckle his son is grew up in cleveland and my grandfather was the last family president of the austin company which brew in Cleveland, a design engineering company, and he'd take me to the city club occasionally when I was given a special treat. We're seeing uh, this rise in what no one expected kind of populist movements that um, in a Western democracy we thought would remain kind of fringe or never um, win a majority of uh, those that are espousing a kind of um, nativism and nationalism, and a bit of xenophobia and uh, nostalgia for the good old days, Not just here. But as you noted, in some of our Western democracies, where for Brexit uh, was fueled by uh, voters feeling left behind and loss of control in a changed world, and and then we elected Trump, our states elected Trump, at least mine, um, uh, with regions where white working-class voters in communities that were still in decline and hadn't turned the corner were the ones who were responding to his nostalgia, nativism, and nationalism. But I think um, we're, we're, we need to make a distinction too, which the Europeans do between kind of left-wing and right-wing. populism. I guess Jeffrey and I will talk about sort of the economic conditions in your community and anxiety about economic change are the root causes of both forms. But folks like Bernie Sanders, for example, who I would consider a kind of left-wing progressive populist, you know, they speak to the same types of anxieties, but they say, let's, let's soak the rich and, and pay for solutions like education and free college and health healthcare uh, and a, a decent-paying job. Whereas the right-wing populists, both here and in Europe, folks like Trump, folks like Marine Le Pen in France, they play on the cultural fears. They sow fears of immigrants and fears of black people and uh, somebody's getting bears or urban elites are taking advantage of you. So the the, the, the populism that's most destructive because it's kind of blowing up our democracies from within is when demagogues feed this kind of right-wing populism that is all about um, pullback from the international community, rejection of people of, of different colors and backgrounds and uh, a, a nostalgia for a past where one's status as a white working class person was secure. So that's the populism we're concerned
2: about. Jeff? Yeah, I would I I wouldn't add much to that. Um NEO's a rather in artful term. You could probably call it at least in Europe populism 3.0. Uh, I mean there have been uh, instances of populist outbreaks going back to the 1950s. Uh, They're usually connected to economic uh, difficulties, economic turndowns. Um, In the 1990s in Germany and elsewhere, we saw a combination of economic difficulties combined with uh, large movements of migrants uh, as a result of the end of the Cold War. Um, uh, So what we're seeing since uh, 2008 is in some ways nothing new, but in other ways, uh, especially worrisome. Uh, given how entrenched uh, these populist parties, uh, particularly on the right, um, John's, John's absolutely correct. There are variants left and right. Uh, the ones that are in the ascendancy now in Europe uh, and arguably here in the United States are the ones on the right.
1: Jeff, can you talk a little bit about the problem of causation versus correlation? Because we see the rise of similar populist figures in all of these countries that you mentioned and and ones that we haven't mentioned, uh, Hungary, for example. Um, how do we know that this is all part of a Unified movement, so to say, are are they individual opportunists in each of these political systems, just trying to drum up votes and, and drum up power?
2: Uh, that's a great question, Tony. And I think your your last comment really um, gets to the point. You know, populism is this very uh, protean, malleable phenomenon. Um, there's no single version of it, uh, even within a single country. Um, we like to talk about the demand side for populism and the supply side. The demand side are the, are the people who, for whatever reason, and we're happy to talk about that as we get into the, to the hour, uh, turn to these kinds of appeals uh, based on, uh, and let's stick with the right-wing version here, um, based on nationalism, based on racism, xenophobia, Uh, They're demanding something in response to a change in circumstances that they're seeing. The supply side is where it gets creative. These are the political entrepreneurs who are looking to win power by appealing to as many voters, many disaffected voters as they can. And and those combinations of demand and supply take different forms, um, uh, not only across countries, but even within countries. And that's one reason we're quick to, to, to acknowledge that when we talk about populism in these former industrial powerhouses, that's not the only brand of populism out there. Uh, you know, we can talk about the rural phenomena. We can talk about wealthy areas uh, in, you know, on the coasts that where populism is is a, you know, Orange County, California, for example. Um, um, so you have to be very careful about about delineating what what you're talking about, and that's why we're focusing on on the intersection of of territory and specifically um, I, I don't like the term rust belt but it's it's a it's a quick way of of connoting what we're talking about uh the intersection of rust belts and these populist phenomena
3: let me add tony uh, as we all know who live in the midwest it is rust belt uh, no more it's not a monolith of struggling old factory towns and, and cities uh so many communities large and small that once were dominated by a signature industry or heavy manufacturing have really turned an economic corner and are kicking it in a kind of globalized high-tech economy. Think of Minneapolis, St. Paul to the West, which was once the flour milling capital of the world and Pittsburgh, you know, had the collapse of the steel industry, but now it's back with AI and robotics and it's thriving. Uh, look at the Columbus and Cincinnati and our university towns, like where I am in Ann Arbor, they're killing it. And have thriving economies but we still have a lot of these particularly small and medium-sized factory and mill towns that have lost their anchors um where where folks have successfully turned an economic corner they're not going for this nostalgia and nativism and they're not the trump supporting voters it's where you're still in a in a hollowed out community that wasn't what it used to be and you're still anxious about the future for yourself and your kids that's where the trump voters here but it's also where the uh, the populist supporters in in the UK are, you know, communities in the North and Midlands that are manufacturing centers like Manchester that are thriving anew. didn't vote for Brexit, and you see the same pattern in Germany and the Ruhrgebiet. You know, they're they're iron and steel and coal country. Um, you know, communities that are are are, are doing well again uh, are are not going for the AFT, the, the you know, the populist right wing party. And nearly the same, you know, support as others. So there is this link between accelerating economic um, condition and creating space for folks to be kind of optimistic and forward-looking, and not susceptible to this um, backward-looking and nativist and and uh, and afraid of the world mentality that yeah, opportunists in politics sell and prey on.
1: So I so I've just I, begun I just this book. It's called uh, "Trade Wars Are Class Wars," and it's by uh, Matthew Klein and Michael Pettis. And they're they're connecting uh, class and and trade wars, as <laughs> as the title lets on. Uh, but early in the book, it makes sure to say all this attention on China, for example, during the the trade war and the increase in tariffs during the Trump era. Uh, that even within China, there are class wars, that, uh, you know, there are uh, areas of the country, industrialized areas of the country, which are not seeing the same amount of wealth, which is flowing to the top uh, of that economy, just as many complain about in the United States. So I wonder, Jeff, maybe if you could start talking about how, how we get to racism, how we get to nationalism, when there are legitimate concerns about inequality and legitimate concerns about investment in communities, both here and abroad, it seems like there's, there's a common story playing out and I don't really understand how we get to racism when we're talking about, you know, this, this vast divide in wealth and investment in communities.
2: Right. I right. know that, that, that's a, a key point. I'll speak about um, the European experience, which I know best. Um, And and the story goes back uh, to the 1970s, where uh, with the OPEC shocks and the first real uh, uh, kind of challenge to the the growth model and the growth uh, example that was going on in the post-war period in Europe, um, what you see at at that point is a a growing um, political divide between Um, a kind of market-oriented, what we call a neoliberal revolution. Uh, Here in this country, it was Ronald Reagan that spearheaded that. In Europe, it was largely Margaret Thatcher in the UK, but she had a lot of uh, followers throughout the continent. Um, And what happens over the course of the next 10 or 15 years is that the the social democratic left, in particular in Europe, kind of seeds the ground um, and, and ends up adopting many of the tenets of the neoliberal orthodoxy. And you know, so my feeling is that the the fact that we don't tend to think of these conflicts in class terms, but but in some sense <laughs> enable others to re, re, uh, redefine them uh, in terms of race, in terms of anti-immigrant uh, uh, attitudes and the like, blaming others for our economic problems. Um, uh, that, that's the, that's the failure of the of the of the center-left. Uh, in Europe, and uh, I would argue, even here in the United States, although I would, I, I think, with this administration, we're beginning to see inklings of a rediscovery of the the kind of clarion role that that a um, a moderate but but distinctly left party can play in reshaping how we think about these key issues.
3: I'd say, hey, John, in can the you- American context? I was going to say in the American context, we have a a long tradition of um, um, race-based, needing someone to uh, look down on or be better than dating back to, you know, the poor whites in the South were we're recruited to side with the wealthy planters, even though they were getting uh, extorted or or abused as uh, Almost as bad, not not nearly as bad as the african Americans, you know, sharecroppers, uh, because under really under stress and economic stress. Uh, folks want somebody or will respond to the suggestion that there's somebody who's who you're better than that, uh, you can look down on. And we you know when working class whites, say in a Flint, Michigan, are doing pretty well putting the table, being able to afford a boat and uh, cottage and aren't they're less threatened by both immigrants and their own loss of economic status, perceived real vis-a-vis African Americans and immigrants. And it's relatively easy when folks are under stress or feeling anxious about their future for, again, kind of racist demagogues to say, and this is what we've seen very clearly here, and also I would imagine in Europe, but ours is much more kind of black, white, people of color, race driven. Look, it's those folks, it's those, uh, African-Americans or immigrants who are getting something they don't deserve, they don't work for at your expense. And that's, of course, not true. But that's what folks are telling folks, working class whites whose lives aren't exactly what they hoped they would be or /or they're anxious about their, their future and the future for their kids. Understandably anxious when many of them have been dislocated from good paying jobs that it didn't require any education in the case of some of the line jobs in our great factories, uh, but you know the answer is is not to tell them to blame these other folks. Say, oh, here's the skills and the education we will give you, uh, so that you can get a good painting job. Which there are lots of programming the robot, not um, you know mindlessly uh, sticking something on a fender.
1: Uh, our first question, uh, John, from the audience, is asking you to talk a little more about your research into the Ruhrgebiet in Germany, the, the so-called German Rust Belt, and uh, what the U.S. might learn from the German transformation of that region.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I was on the, you know, an international study trip with folks from other countries who were looking at this very topic, and I'd focus myself on, you know, how do we accelerate economic transition and change in, in the Midwest and speed it up for all, for the benefit of, of our people. But um, in Germany, we saw, you know, a, a region that is eer- really reminiscent of, you know, Ohio and, and Michigan and even closer to kind of the Western Pennsylvania, coal and steel, region. lots of little communities that once relied on their, their you know, machine-making, iron, coal, and steel uh, production. I mean, that's the region that powered Germany's you know, war machine uh, and their heavy industry for generations. The Germans have a different kind of federal approach. We don't have anything close to. They have a commitment in their constitution to say every German deserves an equal opportunity at a decent life wherever they live in this country. They have a long-term bipartisan tradition or nonpartisan tradition of, as does you know, the EU policy. Let's let's organize to level up in the British terminology, or to support the successful economic transition of regions like the Ruhrgebiet from old to new. So they do things that are very long term in planning. Uh, you know, they build new research Fraunhofer institutes in these old industrial regions as kind of fulcrums for new innovation and new business development. They manage the transition of workers you know, both buyouts, relocation, but more importantly, kind of um, uh, retrain uh, from those who worked in those old industries to new industries like clean energy. Uh, They they do spend a lot of resources on um, helping their communities move out of uh, dirty, polluting, you know, uh, um, regimes in their businesses and in their offices and become kind of models of clean, green, uh, communities, which they are uh, developing. So they have a, 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 a kind of a longer term strategy that we can learn a lot from that you can organize um, sort of systematically efforts to support this transition from a kind of dirty old economy to the smart, clean economy of the future and help your workers, your communities navigate that successfully. It's not perfect. And there are things that they can't do that we do a lot better. Like how do you support innovation and new business startups out of the research and development because they you can't plan that it's, it's 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 chaotic entrepreneurs and financiers you know taking the new invention that comes out of the cleveland clinic and turn it into a new you know medical device uh we do that a heck of a lot better than anybody uh but uh, that's what they can learn from us perhaps.
1: you know uh extending our our time in germany as well as the roerge of course you have the former gdr uh, jeff and you have you know i think it's it's billions if not trillions of euros which have flowed Uh, into the eastern part of the country, uh, which uh, after unification, there was a recommitment to that region, which was not invested in as the West was. Uh, And still, when you see glimmers of hope, uh, I reported from Germany uh, for a year and I was in Switzerland after that. You see glimmers of hope. I visited a Bombardier um, uh, factory, which was creating trains and, and trams. It was a fantastic operation. But when you still look at unemployment, and you also look at the number of people who are voting for the AfD, Alternative for Germany, uh, party, and are staying right-wing because they still feel forgotten, um, what does that say? Does it say we we just need to redouble efforts, or or is there something else going on?
2: Uh, it says a couple of things. I mean, the, the the former GDR is a is a textbook case of rapid deindustrialization, you know, with the decision to basically transfer the entire political, institutional and economic apparatus of West Germany to East Germany in 1990, uh, it was literally just a matter of months before that economy collapsed and, and, and hundreds of thousands, millions of jobs, many of them relatively speaking, high paying, high status manufacturing jobs just disappeared. Um, and and it's no accident that we're also looking at the part of Germany where support for the AfD is the highest, support for this populist party is the highest, where attitudes about foreigners and about, um, about Muslims and so on are the, are the most extreme uh, in Germany. The, the, the region almost proves our point in a way uh, in a much more compressed time frame than occurred here in the United States, but I think to your point, what it suggests is that any policy, any initiative that is going to be undertaken uh, to try to, uh, to essentially unwind the effects of 40 years of industrial decline, 10 years of financial crisis shock, uh, you know, five years of conditioning through right-wing media and, and right-wing politicians to, to blame the other for your problems, it's a long-term project. Um, and it's certainly going to be a longer-term project than an election cycle. Uh, which is why we need to get institutions on the ground. We need to get buy-in from people who live and work in these areas. So this can't be a top-down initiative in any way, shape, or form. I mean, one of the one of the brilliant uh, dimensions of European Union policy, is, as John pointed out, everything that's done in the Ruhrgebiet is kind of under this umbrella of the EU. The EU has been very good at devising schemes that in a sense, almost forces regional actors to cooperate with each other. There's there's no payoff for being competitive with your neighbor. If you're in a designated region that's getting benefits from the EU to try to restructure, you have to cooperate with each other. That's just the way they play the game. And so this war of all against all that sometimes you know characterizes what happens at the U in the U.S. at the local and, and state level, really doesn't occur in Europe. And and so we can learn a lot from them there. But it's got to unfold over, (laughs) it's going to be decades. I mean, but you have to get started now. You know, if not now, when?
1: A lot of time has passed, but maybe this still applies that I'm thinking back to 2010 when Angela Merkel and a number of other European leaders essentially said multiculturalism had failed. And that was the headline in papers around the world. And this coincides with the rise of groups like Pegida, which was an anti-Islam populist movement, but that kind of coalesced with also um, the Occupy movement or the remnants thereof, and it seemed like there was this coalition of just anti-establishmentism. So can you talk maybe a little bit about that, Jeff, and then John, if you want to jump in after Jeff?
2: Yeah, I mean... um, In a way, it's a it's a double whammy for these regions, because as I as I suggested, you have, in many cases, anywhere from 30 to 40 years of secular decline, secular deindustrialization, which kind of laid the groundwork for the shock of 2008-9 with the financial crisis. And, you know, what we see in Europe uh, initially uh, after 2009 is a is a sharp populist reaction on both the left and the right, where the primary enemy um, was the European Union for being ineffective and for having essentially laid the groundwork for this crisis by not integrating sufficiently. You see the focus on um, on elites in general. Um, and and then in 2015 in europe with the um with the the waves of of migrants of refugees coming largely from the syrian crisis that whole framework transforms into an anti-immigrant ethos and this is where the right-wing populists really take the ascendancy the left wing kind of fades in many places uh, in europe and and so you know we're talking about uh a, a, almost a unique period in history that we're having to navigate through um and i will say that there there is a lot of hope uh, to 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 find in europe um, uh, this the so-called welcoming culture the willkommenskultur uh, that Angela Merkel trumpeted in in 2015 you know wir schaffen das we're going to we're going to get through this period we're going to solve it she paid for it politically but a lot of people responded and i would argue even a majority of germans responded positively to that. And there are actually great examples of successful social integration of immigrant communities throughout Germany and other places in Europe, the Netherlands. Uh, but it's city by city. It's, you can't really talk about a country having solved the problem. It's Again, we're down to the talent and, and, uh, and, and innovativeness of, of local uh, politicians and local officials who figure out ways uh, to, to, to make this work.
3: Tony, a couple um, reflections on your um, questions recent on the East and and immigrants. You know, three years ago, when I came to Michigan, I started out in Flint, Michigan, which you know is the is the quintessential company town. General Motors was created there. Seventy thousand people once worked for General Motors, now was down to seven thousand. Um, and when I first, very paternal. Um, we in our region with these big legacy employers and Flint's the extreme case, but you know, a paternal employer, paternal union, if if GM the, the UAW or the Mott Foundation, which is the GM funded fund foundation, if they weren't doing it for the community, folks had lost their entrepreneurial sense of the possible from a hundred years ago. They always were looking up to be taken care of by these big paternal um, employers. When I first went to went to Berlin where the East-West divide is so stark. And I saw the 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 same thing, meaning the Aussies, um, the ones that hadn't left for the West, you know, began to lament the, the lack of this paternal state that kind of at least gave them employment and health care and predictability. And there was the same nostalgia in both places when somebody took care of us with a decent job and some security. And that is so tremendously... Um, potent a feeling and to prey on that nostalgia and then when you know in the Flint context or Macomb County the famous Reagan Democrats when if the folks who don't have any immigrants near them who are told that their relative um, decline and and they're lamenting the loss of the workers utopia that they once had or you know seemed to have for a brief shining moment is somehow the fault of immigrants the anti-immigrant sentiments are most zealous among the white working class folks around who don't live in the city of Flint because they fled the African-American community, but they live right outside in the country. And they, they are the voters who went even more for Donald Trump uh, in 2020 than they did in 2016, uh, particularly you know, faulting immigrant invasions, which were nowhere near them, or kind of wrecking our country and, and somehow touching their lives. And the same, I think, is phenomenon that plays in in a lot of Europe as well.
1: Just a reminder, if you have questions or comments, you can text them to three three zero five four one five seven nine four should be on your screen there. three three zero five four one five seven nine four, or you can tweet them at the city Club. My screen, screen is already populating here. Uh, maybe, John, if you want to take this question first. Populism seems to emerge quickly. Are there any counter-populist messages or figures who have been able to capture attention and success as quickly?
3: Um, I don't know about um, as quickly, but I think, um, you know, the the messaging, you know, that I certainly encourage is to basically hone down this um, flame-throwing rhetoric, which is so destructive. It provokes the, it offers the wrong answer to legitimate anxieties about the future that many working-class whites and, of course, uh, people of color have lots of uh, gaps in their opportunity that need filling uh, and providing the positive message of, of here's how we can create good jobs through, how we can equip you with uh, what you need to get a good job. Uh, and I think that that kind of messaging can be successful, but and, and you know, our whole effort here is, is to focus attention on this phenomenon that if we don't accelerate and uh, reach more people and places with economic opportunity and the chance of a decent life, Uh, they're going to keep responding to the flamethrower. So we have to attack these underlying conditions and we have lots of good evidence and we're putting it together to kind of illustrate the case. When communities that are just like one of these old industrial communities that lost its employment base, when they refine uh, an economy um, and uh, have a um, growing community and good paying jobs available, they are not voting for the trump the world. I um, Kalamazoo and Grand Rapids Kent County Western Michigan are, you know, examples right near me. They both lost lots of a traditional manufacturing base. Kalamazoo lost its anchors. You know, Upjohn almost closed. Pfizer bought it and then hollowed it out. They lost 40,000 good jobs, but they did some things as a community on their own. They kept some of that bioscience talent. They remade their downtown for uh, to be attractive, but then they created the Kalamazoo Promise, which guaranteed anyone that goes to your school district, it's a free college education in Michigan. And it, it created an in-migration of, of middle-class families back in Kalamazoo. And, and it's a growing again. And they are one of seven counties that voted for the Democrat. And Kent County in Grand Rapids is similar. It it was a Republican bastion for years, but it's, it's a changed community, it's more diverse, it's more prosperous and, folks are went for a democrat in our governor three years ago and and went for for the first time for a democrat president ever It's the last time,
1: yeah it's it's definitely a similar situation of course in northeast ohio i I think of youngstown and gm shuttering the plant in uh lordstown uh, just outside youngstown and um They've tried to kind of recreate themselves with Lordstown Motors and electric vehicles. And there's uh, federal support for an innovation hub in Youngstown, which is great. But we also saw such an outflow of workers from GM because they didn't have a job anymore. They didn't know what prospects were. So there's kind of this transition period, I guess you could say, where you're trying to deal with the loss of that old industry or old employer, and you're also trying to maintain your community to be able to build something more. Uh, do you have any thoughts on kind of that transition period, John, and maybe Jeff, if you want to take it after that?
3: Yeah, once once any of these communities um, that r- relied on some big anchor employers that are either poof or significantly diminished because they're restructured because it just, only takes, you know, 400 people to run an auto plant, where it used to take 4,000, because they're running computers. Um, it's You can get in a, in a downward spiral where your tax base is eroded, then you can't keep up the parks or the roads or the water, to, and your community's not attractive, and all the young people are headed for the hills. Um, and some of our communities have been in that 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 cycle. But I think the, we're encouraging, you know, we need federally and, and, and in our states, our communities to have place-based focus economic support strategies like the Germans you know and the European Union are comfortable with where we're going to provide disproportionate resources for communities that are in transition, I call them that's the optimistic side versus in distress but that could package resources for infrastructure, for job training, for small business development support uh, and and focus that where it's needed in the fa- places that are still not naturally on their own hoof, finding the path to success in a very different economy. And that's part of what we're pushing with the Biden administration and some of the rhetoric and some of the policy is talking about that, you know, when we build new infrastructure and a clean energy economy, let's really focus it on delivering for both left behind people in our cities, but also in communities and places that are left behind where workers are dislocated and put them back to work. So we need as much of that kind of commitment on a, a package of uh, education and skill building and innovation, new business development and good paying jobs and, and place based you know, redevelopment resources that, you know, communities that are still in that transition from old to new can, can use to, to create the conditions in their community that make it a place people want to stay and even want to come to.
2: Yeah, I, all I would add to that is that, um, in addition to the to the folk FOCI and policies that John mentioned, uh, we shouldn't forget the importance of um, of trying to retain the younger uh, uh, population in the region. And one way to do that um, is to focus on the connection between uh, this this industrial industrial reconversion. Um, and the community colleges, the the Germans have a, a wonderful vocational training system that's been in place for decades. Um, and what's fascinating is that we see throughout the United States efforts uh, to kind of borrow the, uh, and adapt that system to American conditions. Uh, the Germans don't use uh, community colleges. They, they obviously have technical colleges and the like. They play a different role But um, one way to kind of make the German model work in the U.S. is to is to bring the community college network into play. Uh, And there's some interesting things going on in the south, in particular around some of these large plants, uh, VW and BMW. um, uh, I think that's Tennessee and South Carolina, respectively. Um, uh, But the similar model could be adapted here. And that at least offers a prospect to younger people who might be less inclined to head head for the cities, head for where the jobs are. The mobility is so much easier in this country, which is, is a good thing. Uh, it gives people prospects and opportunities to reinvent themselves. But it, it also has a downside for communities uh, because you can, you can bleed out very quickly. And so it's one thing that we need to be thinking about very carefully.
3: Tony, can I just chime in on this point um, on the good news front? Midwest writ large uh, had a relative brain drain. You know, We educate lots of people, our own people and others at our great colleges and universities that had been leaving for you know, perceived greener pastures. That Midwest brain drain has just reversed and for the first time in during the last decade, there is more going on here. There are more folks involved in kind of work of the future and wanting to stay and, and remake their communities here. Um, You know, places like Minneapolis and others had long been a a talent magnet, but now, you know, Pittsburgh, which was hemorrhaging bodies and I'm sure, you know, educated folks at Case Western and Ohio State used to go somewhere else. And now more of them are making their future here because we're making more of the future here.
1: And there has been investment, of course, in Ohio on apprenticeship programs and vocational programs. Um, I know there's a Swiss company called SFS Intech in Medina, just south of here, uh, which has a partnership with University of Akron, for example. uh, Just one of many examples. Um, Get to some of these questions. Jeff, I think you might take this one back to populism. Uh, populist politicians who are women seem to be rare in the United States and Europe. Many of those who are women, such as Marine Le Pen, have familial ties to male populist politicians, or maybe it's a um, uh, a regime uh, in in the case of France. Uh, What are the linkages between populism, disenfranchisement, and masculinity, would you say? (laughs)
2: <laughs> wow, that's a great question. Um, I, I would say that uh, certainly in the European context, uh, there are uh, a surprising number of prominent women, uh, you know, at or near the top of many of these populist parties. Uh, it's a puzzle that people um, that I've talked to, you know, other other academics who work on this topic, uh, are frankly kind of flummoxed by. Uh, it's not clear what's going on here. Um, although I will say in the case of one party where women were very prominent initially, the Alternative for Germany, the Alternative for Deutschland party, uh, the men seem to have reasserted themselves in recent years. But but then again, they're not doing a very good job of it. The party has lost uh, a significant amount of support uh, over the course of the pandemic. And this actually gets back to one of your earlier questions. Um, You know, one of the things that that you can do to fight populism is actually t- when you take power as a mainstream party or coalition, is get things done. Um, you know, actually um, uh, pass legislation that improve people's lives, um, and arguably that's what's been done in many parts of Europe. And, and I know they're struggling now with the vaccine rollout and like and the like. But for a good long time in 2020 and into 2021, um, many European countries, the governments in place, which were not run by populists. We're showing good good success in uh, getting a grip on things, and that was reflected in the polls. the the The, the populists who were on the sidelines, jeering and shouting and pulling their hair out, um, were not doing very well in terms of public opinion. Uh, in part because they have no solutions. I mean, even when they're in power, they have a hard time governing. Um, but uh, but yes, masculinity. I mean, if we're thinking about. Uh, kind of appeals to nationalism, uh, appeals to, uh, to strength, appeals to um, uh, ignoring the needs and the plight of, of others, you know, a lack of empathy. Uh, that, that probably describes your stereotypical male a little better than it does your stereotypical female, but I'll, I'll probably leave it at that before I get in trouble.
1: Uh, That's your choice, Jeff. That's your choice. Um, (laughs) uh, Next question. Uh, Maybe, John, if you want to take this one. Um, It is unique how similar regional patterns around former non-diversified company towns can be. Uh, Think of Janesville, Wisconsin, for example. Uh, What would you ask of local leaders to guide a consensus around uh, a new way of thinking uh, for for diversifying the economy and recalibrating these communities.
3: Mm. Um, before I do that, the prior question, um, the chest stumping of the right wing populism may be a testosterone laden phenomenon, but someone like Elizabeth Warren is a classic, um, you know, progressive populist. Um, the, you know very strongly and clearly saying we need to redistribute some of this wealth that Jeff Bezos has so that people can afford an education and healthcare and a, a decent shot. So uh, it may be a mixed bag, but perhaps the right wing side, as Jeff noted, is, uh, is um, more testosterone laden. Um, I think for every um, a company town or where your anchor employers kind of don't stay on the cutting edge of innovation, uh, and help you continue to be a thriving, uh, job-rich economy. Uh, there are companies, towns where the anchor employer um, has stayed on the cutting edge of change and innovation. I think Cummings um, or Columbus, uh, Indiana, where a home of Cummings Engine. It, it's a company town, but they're the company, you know, financed the world's greatest architects to show their stuff every time they build a library or a, a civic hall, and it became a uh, an innovative architectural destination for the world's great artitec- architects. It, Cummins has stayed on the cutting edge of making big make diesel engines of clean energy, clean engines. Um, they have more green patents and, and Cummings than almost any town in the Midwest. So they're they're competing globally. They're selling their stuff all over the world on the cutting edge of green innovation. And their other company towns are like that. You can't obviously you can't control for. Are your business leaders um, uh, developing the model for their future that puts them where the economy is growing in all these emerging sectors of, you know, clean energy, smart water solutions, sustainable practices? Um, But you can, you know, and there's no substitute for um, uh, when your civic and business and political leadership doesn't get together and have some leadership where you can identify what assets do we have to work with? what long-term strategies should we try to organize around based on what we've got to work with in our community, uh, where they do come together and they do kind of run a plan. Uh, They can execute and they can, uh, over the the medium term and the long term, uh, create a more diverse uh, economic landscape by um, leveraging what assets they have and and putting some energy and money uh, and getting help they need from the states and the feds. I think Wisconsin has leveraged its location, cleaned up their mess on, on the Great Lake. It has the Packers, they're working with Microsoft and kind of a tech incubator um, leveraging the Microsoft or the Packers brand and redeveloping you know, relationships to advance competitiveness to their manufacturing sector with their engineering talents uh, at University of Milwaukee, Wisconsin and other communities around the region can uh, identify their strategic assets and how they can leverage them. But you have to have some leadership that can work together, public, private, and, and run a plan. Uh, and we're trying to illustrate in our work and some of the writings and publications we've already shared, like the Vital Midwest Report that we put out from the Chicago Council. There are many different success paths for similarly situated older industrial communities that look just like us, um, and and how they find new success and learning from each other or being inspired by another community's example like what milwaukee has done or you know what some of these other communities have done to move from old to new that's that's how we think we can uh, share and and help each other both here in this country and across uh, the atlantic where uh, we have a lot to learn and from them and they have a lot to learn from us
1: um, this question, John, maybe if you want to start and then Jeff, uh, jump in, do you have thoughts on the infrastructure bill, uh, bubbling in Congress? What impact do you think it will have on Rust Belt economies? Um, and do you think it might calm nationalistic tendencies or more extreme politicization of, of some of these investments, or is it just, just going to be business as usual?
3: Well, you know, I, I, have an article in Newsweek today about you know a, a big infrastructure plan could deliver hugely for our Midwest, both economically by again being central to extend kind of economic participation to more rural and small town communities where now people fleeing the coast you know, might want to post up on a Great Lake and live and work in a quality of life place. Uh, and but it's gotta be wired. Uh, Play in the world as a business and as an individual, and deliver connectivity an for folks in our cities, so that they can learn, have a chance to participate. Um, obviously, putting people to work building the retrofitting uh, for green and sustainable smart energy systems and products and buildings and schools, you know, can be a huge contributor just to boots on the ground job creation. But what I point out is yes, and then in doing so, it will bring some opportunity to folks who are otherwise maybe not finding a place in today's economy and could, again, repolarize politics by helping more people find a little, um, a little hope and then a little optimism that, yes, we can make it. And then they're able to look around and not be so um, encouraged to think that, um, that they're threatened by change. Uh, they're succeeding in a world. And so it could be a huge boon for us. And as I note in the article, Europeans have done this for a long time when they're trying to balance growth between regions, one of the first things and one of those tangible things, we're going to run high speed um, trains and and infrastructure to connect uh, and allow to be connected less developed to the higher developed you know corridor. And you know it's exactly what we should be doing here.
2: Yeah, and all I would add is um, you know the 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 need for speed was was paramount in this case. and so, um, there, there's every reason to believe. I haven't looked at the bill per se, but there's every reason to believe that uh, states and localities are going to have a fair amount of flexibility and how they make use of these uh, these funds. And this is where initiatives like John's Midwest, you know, Vital Midwest, and others play such an important role that you've had ongoing discussions for many years uh, between and among states, between and among localities to try to develop a kind of regional consciousness about what's needed for the the totality of the economic space that we're talking about. And the reason that's important is every one of these places is different. And so the same cookie cutter approach to infrastructure is not going to work everywhere. Uh, It has to be kind of uh, adapted to local needs and local potentials, this this notion of a place-specific or place-based aid that John talked about earlier. And I'm really uh, optimistic about many parts of the country. And what I'm hoping is that the success stories that are inevitable here, we have a way of, of, uh, of uh, publicizing that and transmitting that so that other uh, regions of the United States um, can can kind of get in the game and understand that if you cooperate, um, you, you actually get ahead of things. Um, it's not every man jack for himself in this spatial economy that we live in and work in.
1: Uh, I'd like uh, each of you to uh, answer this, maybe Jeff first, and i'm gonna I'm gonna morph this question. So if the questioner's watching, please forgive me. Um, what do you think about the future of work? Because during this pandemic, we have been rethinking how we do events, uh, how how we're connecting with coworkers, how we're thinking about what we want work to be, uh, where we spend our time, how we accomplish it. Is there an opportunity for communities like Youngstown, for example, to become some sort of uh, bedroom community or, or you know, remote worker community, which could serve uh, a mid-sized city, metropolis like Cleveland, but anywhere really, because of this rethinking of of what work is now?
2: The short answer is yes, um, and and then absolutely with a big exclamation point at the end um i and i think here government can lead the way ironically and business will too because there there are um there are economies to be realized here by decentralizing and by getting rid of you know office tower blocks with four thousand people in them and so on but i think both the federal government and the state governments are in a position to also lead by example and and think about decentralizing some of their operations in ways that uh, don't just benefit, say, the region where I live—you uh, know, D.C., Maryland, Virginia—but you know, parts of the country that have lost jobs in recent decades and are looking for new footholds. Uh, because a lot of what a lot of what generates growth also revolves around government. I know that sounds like a like a you know a kind of a bad word, but. The fact is uh, the Europeans have been very good about using the public sector to kind of shape the way the private sector then forms around it um, and to use it as a way of getting at these spatial disparities in income and growth and, and opportunity. So I, I think that's a great question by the, by the, the questioner, and, and I, I expect big things to be happening based on the lessons we've learned over this last 18 months.
3: tony there, there, yeah some of some of uh, there were two forces that were already working pre covid one was you know a knowledge economy you're working in offices in front of computers and the bigger metros overall was where the action was and kind of smaller communities at a plant or a factory or a mill were being you know left behind um and that may be um you know that may be changing a bit as some of the you know tech talent is happening uh, Berkeley uh, and California, and wants to live in a nice quality of life place. And it's happening that places with a rich quality of life and place, if they're connected to the world, we're already seeing professionals poached up there. I'm thinking, you know, Marquette, Michigan, in the Upper Peninsula, which was you know the iron ore transshipment place. It was growing again because they wired it to the world and they cleaned up their mess. And it's a great lifestyle, historic community on Lake Superior. That's just beautiful. It has a university they've seen growth even before the pandemic and that opportunity for more of our communities to leverage their unique place and quality of place may be accelerated but also in another dimension you know the the pandemic is is accelerating certain changes to the nature of work more automation you know more um, automated system materials handlers but i'm a great believer that you know there's it's not inevitable versus created because as we're already seeing for every you know, automated uh, warehouse worker that's job is gone. There's a new one making this robot delivery vehicle, you know, designing, coding, and training. There's a guy, a gal on a scooter, um, this, this robot delivery vehicle that we're going to hopefully be making all of those in the world with our abilities right outside my window every day in Ann Arbor. Um And, you know, there's lots of work to do and things to make uh, as the world changes. Uh, look at the, made the medical products and, and protective devices, and even the vaccines. Pfizer is kicking out. They only had a couple hundred people at their manufacturing facility in Kalamazoo. Now, you know, we mean the thing that's saving us all. Uh, and hopefully we don't, won't need all of that type of thing, but there's work changes, and new opportunities are created uh, as others are are, are disappearing. Uh,
1: a final question uh, before we wrap up, and maybe this is a, a big one, uh, but John, maybe you take it first and then Jeff, but I wonder what is it going to take to stop the um, weaponization of the industrial Midwest? The We see this in election cycles that, you know, you can call it the blue wall or you can call it, you know, Trump country, but it seems like it is um, a profile of a person who is looking for opportunity and they can't find it. Uh, So they're latching on to hope in whatever term that is. So do you think this is just going to be a a perpetual part of our politics or is there a way to break out of this and start thinking about our communities in different terms as just political commodities, but as, you know, things to be fostered and and to grow um, new opportunity maybe. So John and then Jeff.
3: Um, yeah, and, and this is a deliberate choice um, non-leaders or bad leaders are making to um, uh, prey on the understandable anxiety about the future and change for lots of particularly working class folks of, of all backgrounds, but uh, speaking to working class whites and saying, You know, we're going to bring back your status and the good old days and we're going to blame and get rid of all these immigrants and other people that are threatening you. That's a choice of how to uh, prey on those understandable anxieties. And we can and good leaders make a different choice. And I think President Biden is doing a decent job of saying no, you know, to build on some of that understandable nostalgia, but say, look, we're America. We can do this. We can do big things. We can create new good jobs, good paying jobs for you. And, and here's how they go about doing it. And so, deliver an answer to understandable concerns and hopes and dreams and worries. An answer that is the right answer, not a destructive answer that is leads to this undermining of our democracy. You know, in such horrifying ways. When folks, you encourage, uh, you know, attack our nation's capital. It doesn't have to be that, that way. But it's leaders who choose to. Offer the destructive message versus a constructive message that gives hope and is a vision for where we can go as you know, as use this American exceptionalism. It's true. We can do big things, we've done them before. We can create new good jobs in all the coming sectors. You need leadership that will help that to happen.
2: Yeah, a uh, very good question. And I, 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 as a political scientist, I guess I'm going to fall back on the importance of institutions here. I mean, one of the reasons that I think the Midwestern states find themselves in the unfortunate political situation they do is the electoral college. I mean, the electoral college turns turns this into you know, a battleground um, uh, every two years, not just every four years. Um, so it's like a perpetual election campaign. but And the great irony is that, you know, in terms of benefits from the federal government, the Midwest really hasn't done that well, despite its centrality, to both political parties. And so how do you break that cycle? Well, I think, you know, along the lines of what John just said, um, mm-hmm. if the Democrats are able to get traction on these big issues and deliver something finally, for the, all the people of the Midwest, not just the ones who voted for Joe Biden, but all of them, all of the communities or as many as possible. Uh, and people start then voting by rewarding the, those kinds of policies. I think it it, it leaves the opposition party uh, very little choice but to follow suit and to start talking about substance uh, and not about uh, culture and uh, loss and um, uh, honor and all this other stuff that that you hear uh, in 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 the election campaigns of of today, uh, but that's a that's a you know that's a big ticket item. It's gonna it's it's not clear that it will work, but I think it's frankly the only way that it will work. And so you know that's one of the reasons we're we're doing this is because these one of the one of the authors that we followed in this in this discussion talks about um, the revenge of the places that don't matter. Um, and this author believes very strongly that these places do matter, but politically they haven't mattered. and, um, and, they're, t- and they're taking their revenge. And so you know we need to listen to that. and uh, and I think part of what we're trying to do is put this issue on the map for for policymakers at all levels of, of the uh, of, of society.
1: Well, thank you for that. I think we're definitely on a map. Uh, (laughs) This was a fantastic conversation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And thank all of you for joining us for tonight's virtual Happy Dog Takes on the World. Forum. We've been talking about the transatlantic effort to diminish the appeal of populism, revitalize Rust Belt economies, and restore democracy. We, of course, were joined by Dr. Jeffrey Anderson of Georgetown University, also John C. Austin, director of the Michigan Economic Center, and a non resident senior fellow at both the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and the Brookings Institution. Happy Dog Takes on the World is presented with the support of an anonymous donor and is a collaborative effort between the City Club of Cleveland, Cleveland Council on World Affairs, the Happy Dog, the Northeast Ohio Consortium for Middle Eastern Studies, and IdeaStream. We sure do appreciate the partnership. All of City Club's uh, virtual forums are presented for free every week Thanks to generous support from Bank of America, Key Bank, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PMC, you can learn more about contributing at thecityclub.org. Join us on May 4th as Happy Dog Takes on the World discusses the decade of war in Syria with Robert Ford, former ambassador to Syria, U.S. ambassador, and Gina abercrombie winstanley former ambassador to Malta. I am Tony Ganser. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. Our forum is now ended. Have a good night.